the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Calcedon Report number 45, May 1969. As was pointed out in our last report, working conspiracies are more than a small circle of hidden men. The conspiratorial men are there, but they are able to work successfully because they bring to focus the basic trends of their day. As a classic example of a conspirator, who was also the man who brought to focus the currents of his age, we cited Ralph Waldo Emerson. Ralph Waldo Emerson was a member of the, quote, Secret Six, unquote, a powerful group of men who conspired to bring about civil war and financed John Brown, a hoodlum pretending to be a religious prophet, to incite that war. The men of the Secret Six were, quote, no muttering little clique of non-entities, unquote. They were Theodore Parker, Dr. Samuel Gridley Howell, Jarrett Smith, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, George Luther Stearns, and Franklin Benjamin Sanborn. The second echelon, or second six, included Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, John Murray Forbes, Thaddeus Hyatt, and briefly, Amos A. Lawrence. C.J.C. Furness, The Road to Harper's Ferry, New York, William Sloan Associates, 1959. Earlier, some of these men had worked to bring about state control of education. Higginson, who had been a zealous supporter of Horace Mann and, of course, of John Brown, Higginson once wrote Brown, quote, I am always ready to invest money in treason, unquote, but regretted he was out of funds at the moment lived long enough to join Clarence S. Darrow, Jack London, Upton Sinclair, and others in issuing the September 12, 1905, quote, call, unquote, which started the Intercollegiate Socialist Society. Are you interested in conspiracies? Then why, quote, patronize, unquote, foreign groups? Emerson and his circle accomplished as much in American history as any. When I was a university student, one of my professors was a brilliant but unstable man who was romantically inclined towards anything subversive. The list of subversive, quote, front, unquote, organizations, which carried his name on their letterheads, was over a page long. He was a nudist, a champion of every rebellious cause, and a great admirer of Emerson. Emerson, he declared, was America's great social revolutionary leader. He led the way in denouncing Christianity and shifting issues from a theological to a sociological orientation. 
He replaced communion with God with communion with one's own soul. He shifted the interest of Unitarianism from church reform to social reform. After Emerson, American society lost its orientation to the kingdom of God and moved towards the kingdom of man. And most of all, Emerson made his revolution popular because he restated all the old truisms of Puritan morality in a humanistic framework. People could now read Emerson's replay of good old-fashioned Christian moralisms without any tie to the triune God. It was now good humanism ready to give man a moral glow without God. With Emerson, the revolution became respectable. All this is true, too true. Emerson shifted society from a God-centered to a man-centered orientation, from the conversion of men by God's grace to the conversion of the state and society by laws. But Emerson was only able to succeed in this task because the older, God-centered orientation had lost its vigor and vitality, and a creeping humanism had already infected much of American life. Emerson and the Secret Six were thus logical developments of American intellectual history. Just as the earlier tradition had its evangelical fervor, its movements to establish schools, seminaries, and missionary societies so the new tradition had a like evangelical fervor to change the social order by statist action. As a result, it organized to promote that action. Let us suppose now that we, stepping back in time, uncovered and exposed the conspiratorial work of the Secret Six. What would have happened? Some would have been alerted and forewarned but as many others would have hailed Emerson and his associates as forward-looking and thinking men and mailed their checks to indicate their support. Our present-day conspiracies have been exposed again and again and again. If people do not know, it is because they do not want to know. As religious humanists, the people of today are far more congenial to socialism in its every form than they are to biblical faith. The Bible today is accepted by many only if they can reinterpret it in terms of their humanistic presuppositions. At the root of our impotence in stemming the present tide of evil is a spiritual impotence. Under normal circumstances, a political revolution is long preceded by a moral revolution. Before the red reign of terror in Hungary in 1918 and 1919, there was a moral collapse. The sense of property, for example, had eroded, and soldiers were casually seizing what they wanted from their own people. From such a working attitude, it was a short step to a theoretical and political faith which said, quote, Now that there is a republic, everything belongs to everybody, unquote. As Cecile Torme, an eyewitness, reported, quote, well-to-do farmers go with their carts to the manors to carry off other people's property, unquote. These farmers were not communists, but they made communism possible. The general moral collapse meant that law in its historic Christian sense had at least temporarily disappeared. Let us turn to the present. Man today is creating a world ruled by violence because of his false premises. Consider the Harvard faculty statement of April 1969, which read in part, quote, 
As members of a community committed to rationality and freedom, we also deplore the entry of the police into any university. Some of us believe the decision to use force to vacate the building was wrong. Some of us believe it was unwise. Some of us consider it unavoidable, though regrettable, unquote. Los Angeles Times, Sunday, April 13, 1969, page 1. Quote, Harvard faculty rebukes both sides, unquote. This is clearly a schizophrenic view of man. The whole man goes to Harvard with his reason as well as his will to violence. To assume at any point or in any area of life that one is coping only with a fragment of man is a dangerous illusion. But the humanist dream of rational man leads to a progressive inability to cope with reality. Like the Marxist dreamers, the liberal humanist will turn to total terror and violence to cope with the monsters they unleash. From the Christian perspective, man at every point is the whole man. An unredeemed man is a sinner whose reason and every other aspect is governed by violence and hatred against God and his law order. Man's only freedom is under law. His only possible power and liberty are limited liberty and limited power. At every point we deal with man's reason, man's love, man's violence, man's total being, and to assume that a particular sphere has a monopoly on reason is to neglect the whole man and find to one's destruction that man is more than reason. Because of the university's anarchistic concepts of reason and freedom, it cannot cope with lawless man except schizophrenically by finally abandoning reason in favor of violence. Cornell's pathetic incompetence in coping with revolutionary students who gave the university only three hours to live ended in a surrender. When the liberal god reason fails another humanistic god, man's revolutionary violence takes over. Violence is the order of the day. The only question is who will exercise it? The establishment are the rebels. Neither has any alternative to violence since both have abandoned transcendental law, God's law. The new God is man, and in the war of gods, the rational man-god loses to the violent man-god. Concerning the new God, listen to Ann Landers, Los Angeles Herald Examiner, Thursday, April 24, 1969, page C5. Dear Ann Landers, your cavalier treatment of a question from, quote, that nut, unquote, who asked if it was true that God is a Catholic, a Negro, a Democrat, was, in my opinion, undeserved. You should have told that inquirer that God is indeed a Catholic, a Negro, and a Democrat. He is also a Hindu, a Jew, a Protestant, Chinese, Japanese, and Indian, a Republican, a Socialist, and an Independent. He speaks Spanish, Portuguese, Swahili, Russian, German, French, Italian, and Thai. God is a priest, a rabbi, a minister, a merchant, a miner, a former, a truck driver, a physician, a lawyer, an architect, an engineer, a musician, a bootblack, and a bank president. He is every man. One who reads often. Dear one. I'm pleased that you read me often. 
I wish you'd write often. Thanks for a superb letter. Most people find this very beautiful. As humanists, they worship his new God, quote, every man, unquote, and deny the triune God of Scripture. As a result, they believe in a totally man-made order in the kingdom of man. And Fabianism and Marxism are classic examples of the kingdom of man. Exposing their conspirators means also exposing the seeds of humanism in modern man's heart. Modern man is not greatly concerned about the conspiracy. After all, he is a part of it. If the threat is only from a small circle of hidden men, and such circles did and do exist before and after Emerson, then, to quote Burton Blumert again, quote, If we only unmask the conspiracy, all our problems would be solved. But if the trouble is in all of us, then we really are in trouble, unquote. Well, we really are in trouble, and our problem is educational, political, economic, scientific, and much, much more. Above all, it is religious. If God be God, then serve him. But if man is your God, then this is your revolution, mister, and you are a real, quote, soul brother, unquote. Calcedon Report number 47, July 1969. In reports 44 and 45, we discuss the fact of working conspiracies as expressions of a moral and spiritual failure in a people. Wherever there is a decline and shift in the basic faith of a culture, there various conspiratorial groups can and do develop the implications of the changing standards into a new social order. The case of Emerson and the, quote, secret six, unquote, was cited as significant a group as any in American history. Certain facts characterized this group. They were Unitarians. They hated the old New England Calvinism and its social order, and they hated the newer Calvinism of the South. Their answers to man's problems were statist and sociological, not Christian and theological. The responsibility of these men was very real. They wanted armed conflict as the means of changing the Union and the entire social order. But lest we make the mistake of seeing the South only as a victim, let us remember that the South succumbed to the tactics because it too was in moral and spiritual decline. A generation earlier, every Southern state save South Carolina had been against slavery. The one question had been, what to do with the slaves after liberation? After all, only a very small minority of Southerners owned slaves, and the others were especially hostile to the institution of slavery. Why then did the South allow itself to be pushed into a stand alien to its best interests? Why did the Southern states secede when its best men opposed secession? The Senate debates of the era revealed the radical Unitarian self-righteousness of Sumner, but they also revealed the failure of the Southerners, except Andrew Johnson, to do more than react. They too often lacked a moral perspective to assess their situation. When South Carolina seceded and proclaimed itself a sovereign and independent nation, a very prominent citizen of Charleston, James Louis Pettigrew, said sadly, quote, 
It won't work. South Carolina is too small for a nation and too large for a lunatic asylum, unquote. The, quote, Reconstruction, unquote, which followed the war was a vicious and unconstitutional order, and E. Merton Coulter's The South During Reconstruction, 1865 through 1877, a book disliked by our liberals today, is a good account of those ugly years. The liberals and their moral bankruptcy try to justify Reconstruction, and the conservatives condemn it. Both tend to overlook the fact that Reconstruction was first applied by the Confederacy to Tennessee at the beginning of the war, and with all the ugliness which later marked, over a longer span of time, the Southern Reconstruction. Neither one justifies the other. Both indicate the moral climate of the day. A change in the religious and moral climate had made both possible. Ideas not only have consequences, they have roots. The roots of ideas that govern an age are deeply embedded in the faith of that age. To cite another example, in recent years the U.S. Supreme Court has radically altered the Constitution by legislative interpretations. Certainly the judges have exceeded their authority, but their actions have deep roots in the popular mind. Recently, one of our Calcedon Report family reported a statement made in Southern California by a teacher of a large, ultra-fundamentalistic woman's Bible class, quote, human needs come before God's law, unquote. She was almost alone in her protest. If fundamentalist Bible teachers hold this position, need we be surprised that the Supreme Court holds that human needs comes before man's law? Remember, the Constitution forbade the use of militia, in example drafted men, for any purposes save one, to repel invasion, two, suppress insurrection, and three, enforce the laws of the Union. President Wilson set this aside and the court backed him. Two world wars, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War are clearly illegal in terms of Article 1, Section 8, Paragraph 6. If this provision of the Constitution is bad, it should be amended. But if it is not, and I believe it to be one of the best safeguards of the Constitution, then why not work to reestablish it? If we let it stand as a dead letter, then nothing in the Constitution can stand against, quote, need, unquote, and expediency. Because there is now no sense of or respect for higher law, God's law, how can men be expected to respect man's law? A generation which treats God's law word lightly will most certainly treat man's law even more lightly. The roots of our problem and our vulnerability to subversion are in our moral and religious decay. Nothing is more foolish than the attempt by many to say that only a small minority of people are involved in the violence and disorder of our day, and that, quote, the silent majority, unquote, is against all this disorder. The reality is otherwise. Some polls show very happy results. Almost everyone is against higher taxes, violence, rights, etc. Well, everyone, or almost everyone, may be against sin, but they are still sinners. Most people, as one legislator has remarked, ask for lower taxes in theory, but in practice call for measure after measure, which will only raise taxes. 
fact is that most colleges see radical students voted into student body offices. The fact is that according to a variety of authorities, from one-third to two-thirds of all college students experiment with drugs and narcotics. The fact is that with each year, our situation grows worse, and even now high school students reveal a greater degree of lawlessness than do college students. Moreover, it is feared that soon junior high students will reveal still worse anarchy and contempt of law. The moral collapse grows deeper yearly. Are the big cities the only trouble spots? Recently, life called attention to the problem at Fort Bragg, California, where perhaps three out of four high school students were on narcotics. And a recent news note stated that in Greenland, 6,191 out of its 40,000 inhabitants contracted gonorrhea last year alone. The moral collapse is worldwide on every side of the iron and bamboo curtains. Everywhere, the sources of legitimacy have the right to govern and command are under challenge and attack. The ideas of legitimacy and authority are basically religious ideas. When the faith behind the idea is gone, the idea is soon gone. Today, the Orthodox Christian faith, which undergirded our doctrines of authority, is being fast replaced with humanism, the religion of humanity, and as a result, the old authority is rapidly disappearing. It cannot be preserved by a rootless conservatism which wants to preserve the fruits without the roots. Every rootless tree is soon dead. The result is lawlessness, anarchy, and violence. But the humanism which is replacing Orthodox Christianity is unable to formulate a doctrine of authority which can give order and stability to society. Recently, the head of a major university shown on television addressing a convocation deplored the use of force on his campus by both police and students. The university, he said, is a place for reason and coercion has no place in the academic community. Everyone applauded. In fact, it was a standing ovation at this point. No place for coercion. Today, taxes are basic to, quote, private, unquote, and state colleges and universities. Private universities and colleges are virtually all heavily subsidized by federal funds. Taxes represent an aspect of coercion. Without this coercion, the schools would soon close. Compulsory education into the teens in every state is a form of coercion, as is testing. Without police protection around the borders of our colleges and universities, the existence of these schools would soon cease. Because the humanist has no valid doctrine of authority, he creates a world of anarchy and coercion and soon must invoke total coercion as his only answer. Marxism proclaimed a world without tyranny, without oppression, and without coercion, not even a state, finally, and it instituted the world's most oppressive coercion. Its doctrine was pure reason, and the inevitability of those forces established by pure reason, but it made brutal coercion inevitable, because man is not pure reason, but rather a sinner who needs not only grace, but God's law order. At every point, man is and must be under God's law order, and he is either under it by grace 
or by judgment. To dream of a domain of reason removed from authority and coercion is to be living in terms of an illusion. The whole man meets us at every point, whether in the academy, the marketplace, the church, or the street, and to reckon without that reality is to court suicide. But we are asking for trouble. We are denying doctrines of responsibility. Dr. Efren E. Ramirez, M.D., in Science Digest, quote, Drug addiction is not psychologic, unquote, May 1969, states that the typical drug addict, quote, has a weak sense of responsibility, little commitment to anyone or anything. His life is dismally disorganized, and he can't seem to learn from his failures. He shows poor motivation to be cured, and the current belief that addiction is psychologic just gives the drug addict another excuse for saying, I can't help myself, unquote. This is not only a good description of the addict, but of most people in varying degrees. In varying degrees, all, like the addict, want to blame their problems on someone else, their biology, their inheritance, the capitalistic system, the leftist conspiracy, and so on. There may be elements of truth in some of these things, but the basic problem is man's moral and religious failure. No addict cures himself with excuses or by documenting his problem. No society heals itself of subversion by blaming anyone or by documenting its problems, but only by changing its ways. Our revolution today is every man's revolution in country after country. The people are voting in favor of it at the ballot box and in their everyday lives. The world's vote is for man and revolution, not for Christ and God's law order. People are getting what they ask for, and in the sight of God, they have no right to complain at what they shall get. And brother, they will get it. By the way, according to the daily papers, they are already beginning to get it. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he had shown us by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me.
follow the road leading us home. Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.